Have you ever seen a video of an unexpected reunion? Perhaps it's a son arriving home after a tour of military service. Uh, but he's kept it a secret from his family uh, the date that his tour of duty is coming to an end and so you see someone ha- has has hidden the camera and you see him coming home to to his mother or to to his wife and and young children and they're absolutely overjoyed they they, they haven't been expecting it at all uh, Stenaline actually made a video fairly recently of a family with little kids being reunited with grandparents after not seeing them for about two years because of COVID. Uh, and so the video shows them uh, getting up, the alarm going off in the morning, them driving to the boat. Uh, of course, there's shots of them eating in the restaurant and, and buying stuff in the shop. Uh, and then eventually uh, the reunion itself is shown. Again, the grandparents hadn't known that the family was arriving. And so there's this split second of amazement. uh, There's recognition. And then there's absolute joy as they hug one another, as they jump around and as they they cry out for joy. Well, here in Genesis 45, we have an unexpected reunion. Unexpected for the, the brothers that is because for all their interactions with Joseph over these past uh, three chapters, they haven't recognized that he's actually their brother. Joseph, of course, has recognized them from the very start, but he hasn't yet revealed himself to them. He hasn't yet told them who he is, but now he does. And it's something that he has no doubt longed to do from the moment that he laid his eyes on them. But as we've seen in previous weeks, for their own good, he hasn't. Because first, they need brought face to face with their sin. And then Joseph needs to see if they've really changed. He, he, he gives them, as we saw last time, an opportunity to do something similar to Benjamin that they had done to him all those years before. But, but they don't take it. And then after Judah's impassioned plea at the end of the last chapter to substitute himself for Benjamin, Joseph can't hold in his feelings any longer. And in doing so, again, as we saw last week, he's pointing us forward to the Lord Jesus. Last week I quoted 1 Peter 1 verse 7 in relation to how Joseph had put his brothers through various trials so that the tested genuineness of their faith, more precious than gold that perishes though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What is the revelation of Jesus Christ? Well, it's the day when Jesus will reveal himself to the whole world. At a second coming, will every eye will see him. And in this chapter, we have a preview of that as Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. When the one who they thought was dead the whole time shows that he's actually been alive the whole time. And this is something... Uh, that both Joseph and Jesus are longing to do, uh, 
To give you once more the the quote from Richard Sibbs that I used last week. Christ may act the part of an enemy for a little while as Joseph did, but it is to make way for his acting his own part of mercy in a more seasonable time. He cannot restrain his heart of mercy long. And in this chapter we see Jesus' heart of mercy pictured in Joseph. Uh, We see in this chapter uh, reunion, we thought of that, we see revelation, we've seen that. But we also, uh, and above all, we see reconciliation. Uh, Reconciliation. Uh, What a a great thing it is when two human beings who have been at loggerheads are reconciled to one another. Uh, And yet how how amazing, uh, far more amazing when when human beings are, are reconciled to God. So we have two headings tonight. Uh, the first one's probably a bit shorter. Uh, first heading, unless your sin is dealt with, you will be dismayed at Jesus' presence. Unless your sin is dealt with, you will be dismayed at Jesus' presence. Some reunions after many years are joyful. I've mentioned a few examples of that already. But, but just because a lot of years have passed, it doesn't mean that the reunion will be joyful. Perhaps you've had the experience of getting ready to go to a wedding or a funeral, knowing that you'll probably see someone there who you haven't seen for years and years, and you didn't exactly part on good terms. And so the fact that you're going to see them again consumes your thinking, and it's something you're absolutely dreading. Well, the reunion in this chapter, it does turn out to be a joyful reunion, but it doesn't start that way. Joseph's brothers, they are are certainly not as overjoyed to see him as he is to see them. And the reason for that is fairly obvious. The last time they've seen him, they've put him in a pit and they've sold him to some passing traders. Uh, so, so for some of the brothers, uh, at least one of them, the last time he had seen Joseph, he had seen his head down at the bottom of a pit. For the rest of them, the last time they'd seen him, he, he was going off into the distance, uh, having just been sold. And so, understandably, the brothers fear retribution. If Joseph wants to take revenge on them, there's absolutely nothing they can do. You know, people say revenge is a dish best served cold. Well, if Joseph wanted to do that, uh, he's a time to assess them. He's a time to plan. If Joseph wants to take revenge on them, he can. Now, it's true that the brothers have changed. They've confessed their sin to one another. And in fact, they've even confessed their sin to Joseph as well, even if at the time they didn't realize who he was. But they're still very unsure of how Joseph is going to treat them. And so we're told in verse 3 that they're dismayed at his presence. That word dismayed is used elsewhere in the Bible to describe how God's enemies will react when it comes time for him to act. I pointed it out earlier as we we sang uh, Psalm number 6. Uh, There in verse 10, uh, where God's anointed king says, All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled or or dismayed. It's the same word. They shall turn back 
and be put to shame in a moment. That word dismayed is also used to describe God's own people facing his anger when their sins are brought to light. For example, Psalm 90 verse 7, For we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath we are dismayed. And why are God's own people dismayed? Well, as the next verse goes on to say, You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. And to be troubled or dismayed is the reaction that any human being will have when they realize that they're in God's presence, unless their sin has been dealt with. But if that sin hasn't been dealt with, or if they're not sure whether it's been dealt with, they will be dismayed. Boys and girls, what does it mean to be dismayed at someone's presence? Maybe you've never used the word dismayed before. Well, well, to be dismayed is how you might feel if your mum or dad came into the room and you were doing something that they had told you not to do. Uh, normally, are you, are you happy to see your mum and dad or are you sad? Well, normally, you're, you're happy, especially if you haven't seen them for a while. And yet, if you're doing something they've told you not to do and they come into the room, you will be sad, you will be dismayed. And that's how people who don't believe in Jesus will feel when they one day stand before him. Uh, But far, far worse. If we believe in Jesus, if we've asked him to forgive us our sins, then we will be glad on that day when we see him. But people who don't believe in him will be sad and scared. Because like Joseph's brothers here boys and girls Joseph's brothers they thought that Joseph was dead Uh, and people today they think that Jesus is dead but one day they're going to realize that he's alive again Uh, and if they haven't trusted in him that will be scary Uh, and so our job is to tell people that before it's too late I wrote an article in the Free Press this week about the actor Stephen Fry and, and what he says he would ask God if he could. And one day Stephen Fry will appear in God's presence, but unless he is converted before then, he won't be asking any questions. He will be unable to speak as the brothers are here in verse 3, and he will be dismayed at God's presence. And so will everyone who says, well, if I see God, I'll be asking him this, this, and this. No, they won't. They will be dismayed at his presence. And so I must warn anyone hearing my words tonight that if your sin isn't dealt with while you are on earth, then when you close your eyes in death and open them in God's presence, you will be dismayed The only possible reaction for those who haven't confessed and repented of their sins before God. The only possible reaction for those who haven't trusted in Christ is dismay at his presence. Psalm 130 asks, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquity, O Lord, who could stand? And if their iniquities are marked... If they haven't been forgiven, they won't be able to stand. As the first psalm puts it, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. 
For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And if that is still you this evening, then God is warning you of the fact before it's too late. So that by his grace you can do something about it and put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So firstly tonight, unless your sin is dealt with, you will be dismayed at Jesus' presence. Just as the brothers were dismayed at Joseph's presence. But then secondly, and we'll spend a bit more of our time on this. We see the ruler who suffered so you could be saved. The ruler who suffered so you could be saved. Having seen that we need our sin dealt with before we come face to face with the great ruler of all. Well, how amazing it is uh, that we can hear now that this same ruler suffered so that we could be saved. A few moments ago, I quoted Psalm 130. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquity, O Lord, who could stand? And if Joseph chooses to mark the iniquities of his brothers, they won't be able to stand before him. If he has held on to their wrongs against him, they won't be able to stand when he comes down on them. But the amazing thing is that Joseph has chosen not to mark their iniquity. He's chosen not to hold their sin against them. Because with Joseph, as with Jesus, there is forgiveness. But the brothers are dismayed in verse 3 because they don't realise that yet. They know they're guilty, but they don't realise they're forgiven. They know they're guilty, but they don't realise that they're forgiven. And I wonder, is that you tonight? Are you in a similar position? The brothers, they don't realise that Joseph has revealed himself to them, not to punish them, but in order that they might be reconciled. And while tonight I I may be speaking to someone who needs to realise that they will be dismayed at God's presence because their sin has not been dealt with, I'm probably speaking to more people who are like Joseph's brothers, who have been forgiven, but who are perhaps still anxious. Maybe you are uncertain as to what sort of reaction you'll receive on the day you stand before the Lord Jesus. And so just as Joseph sought to reassure his brothers, tonight I want to reassure you. Sometimes we think of sermon application of of a list of things that that we should go away and do in the week ahead. And that's not necessarily wrong, but the main application I want you to take away from this sermon is reassurance when you come to think of standing before the Lord Jesus. I want to reassure you tonight that if your trust is in Jesus Christ, you have no need to be dismayed at the thought of his presence. But rather you're among those who Paul talks about, uh, who can look forward to his appearing. Uh, Do you remember what the Apostle Paul says uh, towards the very end of his final letter, at the end of 2 Timothy? For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. 
Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And so I pray that God would use this sermon tonight, that more and more you would love the thought of Jesus appearing and any anxieties that you may have about his appearing would be taken away. So how does Joseph go about reassuring his brothers here and what does that tell us about how the Lord Jesus wants to reassure you tonight? Well, for a start in verse 4, Joseph invites his brothers to come near to him. The most terrible words that anyone will ever hear are the words of the Lord Jesus when he says, depart from me. Maybe like Simon, who we thought about this morning, they they think they're part of of the people of God. uh, And even if their lives haven't matched up to it, nobody has ever loved them enough to tell them. And they think they're okay, but they appear before the Lord Jesus and he says, depart from me. But Joseph, he says, come to me. And Jesus also invites us to come to him. He says that to us now in this life. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And if you have done that, if you have come to him in this life, if you know the rest that he has given you here and now, then when you stand before him on that final day, his words to you won't be, depart from me, but they'll be, come to me. He will be be there in heaven, more anxious than than anyone else to, to welcome you in. And then what Joseph says to them next is even more encouraging because he, he might be saying to the brothers, come to me uh, so that, so that I, can, I can inflict punishment on you. But what he goes on to say would give them confidence that he plans to do good unto them and not harm. Because what does he go on to say? He says, I am your brother, Joseph. Uh, yes he does go on to say whom you sold in Egypt maybe that doesn't sound too encouraging but here's the encouraging bit that he is choosing to relate to them as their brother and he didn't have to do that he could have chosen to relate to them as the governor of Egypt he could have said that their family relationship was over I read a news report during the week about two sons who had been abused by their mother in Canada. And they said, uh, they were interviewed, they, they said, she's not our mother anymore, she's just the woman who gave birth to us. She's not our mother anymore. And it would have been absolutely understandable if Joseph had said, you are not my brothers anymore. It would have been absolutely understandable if Joseph wanted nothing more to do with them other than to sentence them to the worst fate imaginable. But he doesn't. As Hebrews says of the Lord Jesus, Joseph isn't ashamed to call them brothers despite what they've done to to him. Uh, 
we saw in a previous chapter that the, the Egyptians don't eat with the Hebrews because that's an abomination to them. Uh, and so Joseph could have acted as an Egyptian. He could have said, I'm, I'm not going to talk to you. I'm not going to eat with you. Uh, our, our relationship is over. But he doesn't. And our great hope tonight, our great confidence for the day when we will stand before the Lord Jesus is that he has chosen to relate to us as our brother. Do you remember the message that Jesus gives Mary Magdalene for the disciples when he's raised from the dead? Does he say, uh, go to those uh, failures of disciples Does he say, go to those who ran away from me? Does he say, go to those who let me down? Does he say, go to those who abandoned me? Does he say, go to your friends? No, he says to Mary, go to my brothers. Go to my brothers. Joseph is their flesh and blood. But he could have said, you're dead to me. He could have acted as the governor of Egypt towards them and brought down the full force of the law, but he chooses not to. And we can be confident that the Lord Jesus will do the same. And in fact, we can be more confident because it's no accident of birth that he's our flesh and blood. But rather the very reason that he is our flesh and blood is because he took on a human nature so that he could save us. Uh, Hebrews 2.14, as the NIV puts it, Since the children of flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. So Jesus took on flesh and blood in order to share in our humanity so that he could break the power of the devil over us. And now we've been adopted into the family of God. And so uh, there is no doubt at all that Jesus will choose to act towards us as our brother. But perhaps we ask the question, well, well, why does Joseph do this? After all that the brothers have put Joseph through, why does he choose to relate to them as their brother? Why, why forgive them? Why grant reconciliation? Well, like with Jesus, Joseph realizes that the very reason he has ended up in Egypt and gone through what he's gone through is for their sake. Joseph could have looked at them and said, ah, you tried to, to do something really bad to me, but, but it's all worked out well, uh, and so, uh, and so every, everything's great, uh, and, and things have worked out well for me, uh, and, and it's just chance that I am where I am. But like Jesus, Joseph knows that God has chosen to work redemptively through his sufferings. I'll say that again. Like Jesus, Joseph knows that God has chosen to work redemptively through his sufferings. Joseph's sufferings, like Jesus, they weren't meaningless and they weren't because of their own sins, but they were redemptive for the good of others. Joseph has undergone extreme suffering. 
In fact, what he has gone through has pictured nothing less than a death and resurrection. Whether you take being thrown into the pit and then being thrown into prison, which is also described as a pit, but then being raised up and brought into the king's presence. Or the fact that they thought he was dead and now he's alive again. That also symbolizes a death and resurrection. And Joseph knows that what he's gone through hasn't been random. But actually God put him through it so that he might be able to save his brothers. Unless Joseph went through those sufferings, he wouldn't have been able to have saved his brothers And unless Jesus had suffered what he did, he would not have been able to save us. As Joseph puts it here in verse 5, For God sent me before you to preserve life. To preserve life. And so he's not going to execute his brothers because the very reason he's been sent ahead of them is to preserve their lives. In fact, three times in four verses here, Joseph tells his brothers that despite what they had thought, the very reason he'd ended up in Egypt is that God had sent him ahead of them. That word sent that occurs three times. He says it here in verse 5 as we've just seen. And then he says, verse 7, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. And then the third time is in verse 8. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Do you see what a high view that Joseph has of God's sovereignty? That God hasn't merely turned a bad situation into a good one. But God has actually been in control the whole time. Sending Joseph on ahead of them. Here's a question for you. Is it true to say that God brings good out of evil? Uh, Well, yes, it it is true. I think we can say that. But sometimes we can talk about God bringing good out of evil as if God is simply making the best of a bad hand. As if Satan is the one taking the initiative. But, But every time God somehow manages to snatch victory from the jaws of defeat... As if Satan is the one starting the story, but God uh, comes along behind, behind him and finishes it. But look at what Joseph says three times here. He says that God sent him to Egypt. Not just that God overruled evil actions for good, though that's true, but that God's plan all along had been to use the jealousy of Joseph's brothers to advance that plan and to send Joseph exactly where God wanted him to be. Just as with the crucifixion of Jesus, that Jesus would be crucified at the hands of lawless men, but they did that all that God had planned to take place. These things do not mean that God is the author of evil, nor does it mean that Joseph's brothers are innocent. Joseph says in verse 4, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. They were still responsible for their actions. But all they had managed to do was further God's plan. The difference is, as Joseph will put it later on, that what they meant for evil, God meant for good. And it it is the intention behind it that makes all the difference. 
the same action, but God means it for good and they mean it for evil. While the brother's intention was to get rid of Joseph, God's intention was to save them through Joseph. To save them physically from starvation through the famine. I think that's the the primary reference here when Joseph talks about saving many lives or saving life. But I think we can also say as well that, that God was going to spiritually... God was going to save the brothers from spiritual disaster because they, they were in such danger of blending in with the Canaanites as we saw back in chapter 38, the story of Judah and Tamar. So God not only saves them, them physically by bringing them to Egypt, but he, he spiritually saves them from just blending in with the people around them. And of course, from, from the bigger picture as well, he did it to teach the people of Israel and to teach us many lessons about slavery and redemption that they could only learn through being slaves in Egypt and being led out by God's mighty hand. Uh, Maybe think about that sometime. Imagine you take the the Exodus out of the Bible with the whole vocabulary of of slavery and and redemption. Uh, To a large extent, it, it would disappear but rather God is giving us the, the vocabulary in the Old Testament so that in the New we can understand what Jesus came to do. And so this reunion ends joyfully. The brothers are reconciled to the ruler of the land. Why? Because he chooses to relate to them as flesh and blood. And because he knows that the very reason he suffered was for their salvation. Their physical salvation, of course, in, this, in the case of Joseph. But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ this evening, then, then all these things are, are true of you, but in an even greater way. There is one in heaven tonight who is clothed in flesh and blood and who has suffered for your salvation. It's not just that Jesus was a man on earth, and he's no longer a man, uh, but the man, Christ Jesus, is at God's right hand. The great ruler of all, and yet he came to this earth and he humbled himself, and the devil tried to persuade him to act as God. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God or or since you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. But what does Jesus reply? Have you ever noticed his first word? Man shall not live by bread alone. Satan says, prove you're the son of God. And Jesus could have acted as the son of God there, but he chose to act as man, as our flesh and blood. He faced temptation as man and he withstood temptation as man so that he could bring redemption to men and women and boys and girls. And Jesus suffered death as man for the same reason. And now tonight in heaven, he, he hasn't set aside his human flesh and he's not ashamed to call you his brother or his sister. You may have been ashamed of him this week. You may have a, had an opportunity to speak of him and, and kept your head down, but he is not ashamed of you. 
And in fact, he is longing for your presence with him in heaven, just as Joseph was longing to be able to reveal himself to his brothers and then have them all come permanently to Egypt to be with him. Joseph is, is so keen in the rest of this chapter that they, will, that they will quickly hurry and bring Jacob back so that they can all dwell permanently with him. And the Lord Jesus has the same desire for you this evening. I probably wouldn't dare say this in a sermon if Thomas Boston hadn't, hadn't said it first. Uh, when he said Christ is not satisfied in his glorious estate until we be with him. Or the, the Puritan John Flavely talks about Christ's ardent desires to have his people with him where he is. The brothers are fearful when they realise that they're standing before Joseph. But this is actually the very moment he's been longing for for so long. All they can think of in that moment is what they have done to him. And yet everything they had, everything he had been through was in order that he, the ruler, and they, the brothers, could stand there reconciled. And so brother or sister in Christ tonight... Yes, if your sin had not been dealt with, you could have every reason and should have every reason to fear standing before the great and awesome ruler who is the power of life or death over you. But because that same ruler has done everything that's needed for your sin to be dealt with, you need to have no anxiety. You need have no anxiety. Because when you get to heaven, of everyone there... It will be your brother himself who is the one who is the most anxious to come and greet you, welcome you in and reassure you that all is well. Amen. Well, having referenced the 130th Psalm a number of times tonight, we'll close by singing it. Psalm 130, the B version on page 327, Psalm 130, uh, version B, uh, tune uh, Martyrdom 114. If God marked iniquity, we wouldn't be able to stand on the day that he judges the world by the man he appointed, Jesus Christ. But our confidence tonight is that very judge and ruler took on flesh and blood so that he could live and die in the place of his people, and with him is forgiveness. So Psalm 130b, the tune is Martyrdom 114, will stand and sing praise. <laughs>